Welcome to the History of Chemistry podcast. I'm Steve Cohen, your host, and this is episode 91, In the Air Tonight, to continue the story of atmospheric chemistry and the environment in the 1980s. Thanks to those who already support this podcast. Support the continuation of this podcast at Patreon. The website is www.patreon.com forward slash the history of chemistry. Yes, I know we just had an environmental chemistry discussion in episode 88, but recognition of environmental problems ramped up dramatically in the 1980s, and we have to continue the story we started in episode 75 on chlorofluorocarbons' effect on stratospheric ozone. We left off when the European Economic Community and the USA heavily restricted production and use of chlorofluorocarbons by 1980, but their use continued to expand anyway, and things looked grim. The problem with the scientists' arguments at the time was that the data were flimsy, based heavily on balloons floating in the upper atmosphere. Switching from aerosol spray cans with CFCs as the carrier gas to something else wasn't too hard. But what do you do with air conditioners and refrigerators, which rely on Freon to do the work? So we return to 1977 to Great Britain. A 24-year-old Welsh scientist, Jonathan Shanklin, found an advertisement for a post with the British Antarctic Survey, which said in part, quote, Wanted, physicist with an interest in meteorology and programming skills, unquote. He had a bachelor's degree in natural sciences with a specialization in physics, particularly geophysics. Initially, he wanted to go into teaching, but found the British educational system too much like an assembly line. Apparently, after his interview with the Antarctic Survey, he was second on their list, but the number one candidate rejected the job. Shanklin's first task with the British Antarctic Survey was to monitor the ozone data from three spectrophotometers the survey set up in Antarctica. They'd been recording ozone levels since the late 1950s. The instruments are technically called Dobson spectrophotometers, which compare the intensity of ultraviolet A radiation at 325 nanometers to the intensity of ultraviolet B radiation at 305 nanometers. The amount of both wavelengths of ultraviolet should be the same if there were no ozone in the air. The ozone absorbs a bit more shorter ultraviolet B radiation, though, so we can compare the two to calculate the ozone concentration. The value is given in Dobson units. This is obviously not a metric unit, but one Dobson unit is equivalent to a 10 micrometer thick layer of pure ozone at standard temperature and pressure. Interestingly, Britain's dispute with Argentina over the Falklands, or Malvinas Islands, later got the spectrophotometer at Gritviken captured, but later returned to Britain. 
It turns out the scientists till then had been recording the values by hand on paper, which meant there was a backlog of dealing with old paper-based ozone levels. There was definitely interest in the late 1970s in the survey's data because of the reports from Molina and friends in California. Shanklin started working on the current data, and as he says, quote, "Being an ignorant physicist, I thought if I took this year's ozone data and compared it with readings from 20 years earlier, it would be the same, and so people needn't worry." But the readings weren't the same, and so it required following up. Unquote. So he worked his way back through multiple handwritten years of monitoring to check what was going on with ozone levels. Was the current year just an oddity? No. The years of data showed a clear trend: spring measurements of ozone were falling over time. By 1984. The ozone layer was only two thirds what it was decades before. Even so, Shanklin still thought initially that this was peculiar only to Antarctica, and purely of academic interest. But he did publish a paper with a chemical mechanism describing what might be going on, and it was printed in May 1985 in the famous journal Nature, with colleagues Joseph Farman and Brian Gardiner under the title. Large losses of total ozone in Antarctica reveal seasonal CLOX-NOX interaction. Here, the X means multiple types of chlorine oxide molecules, and likewise multiple types of nitrogen oxides. The effect on the scientific community was immediate, and chemists were frightened. Sherwood Rowland and several others began looking carefully at the data. And then published another paper in 1986 in Nature, which described new data and a clarified mechanism for the drop in ozone. They suggested that hydrogen chloride and ClO2 reacted on the surface of clouds in the ultra-cold air above Antarctica, and it all came back to chlorofluorocarbons. Countries around the world reacted with shock and alarm upon hearing sound bites about a hole in the Earth's ocean of air. The ozone hole was real and measurable, and the Freon manufacturers could no longer hide or gaslight, though they tried. There were predictions of a massive rise in skin cancer, loss of agricultural productivity, and death of marine plankton, the base of the ocean's food chain. To be clear, the ozone hole isn't where the ozone is missing, but just much skimpier. That year, a treaty called the Vienna Convention was signed by 20 nations to set up a framework for regulating ozone-destroying chemicals. The Vienna Convention created a group of ozone research managers to write reports on the ozone hole. But as I said, Freon companies still tried to steer public opinion through their Alliance for Responsible CFC policy. Always take care with names. That science was shaky. In 1987, the Dupont Company, which set up this alliance, testified to the U.S. Congress, quote, "We believe there is no imminent crisis that demands unilateral regulation." Unquote. Despite the Freon Industries' attempts, 
the world, or at least 46 countries, signed the Montreal Protocol on September 16, 1987. The Montreal Protocol was designed to phase out chlorofluorocarbon production over time through the following decade. Halons were phased out faster, while chlorofluorocarbons were removed from production more slowly. The replacement chemicals were hydrochlorofluorocarbons. One example is dichlorofluoromethane, or HCFC21, with the chemical formula Cl2FCH. They are still pretty inert, but get destroyed in the lower atmosphere and don't affect the ozone layer. We will talk more about HCFCs in a later episode. Over time, every single country in the world and even the European Union has signed the Montreal Protocol, making it probably the most effective international treaty ever created. The Montreal Protocol has been updated and revised multiple times. The latest revision as of this podcast episode was in 2016. The first discovery of the ozone problem was in 1973, and the agreement was signed in 1987, a span of only 14 years. Annually, September 16th is now the International Day for the Preservation of the Ozone Layer, or colloquially, World Ozone Day. But did the Montreal Protocol work? Measurements of Antarctic ozone continue to this very day. You can find Jonathan Shanklin's current updates on the ozone layer on the British Antarctic Survey's website. The results, plotted over time, show that the minimum concentration of ozone over Antarctica occurred around the year 2000, and the levels of ozone have been rising ever since, and is now back to 1980s levels. There was a slowing of improvement in the late 2010s, which was pinpointed to Chinese factories using CFC 11 illegally to make polyurethane foams. China seems to have quashed this activity, and ozone levels continue to improve. Current projections, if all goes well, suggest that we will have 1980 levels of ozone by 2040. And the ozone depletion will be gone by the late 21st century. The slow rate of recovery stems from the inertness of existing freons in the atmosphere and their gradual decline. We can see how, when nations come together, they can work for the betterment of the entire planet. The Montreal Protocol is an example of a successful treaty. Because we are talking about large or heavy molecules in the atmosphere, especially those molecules with multiple ways of internal motion, that is, vibration of atomic bonds to store and release heat, we can transition to the problem of global warming in the 1980s. But first, let's go back. In episode 49, I discussed some research. Concerning how various atmospheric gases can store heat based on their bonds between constituent atoms 
and how heavy the atoms are. We ended up with Svante Arrhenius's careful calculations in 1896 that changing the carbon dioxide concentration in the atmosphere would seriously affect global temperatures. By the 1930s, a Montreal-born English engineer named Guy Calendar, who was interested in weather and climate, began collecting data on temperatures around the world over time to see if Arrhenius was correct. He argued that with the rise of the industrial age and burning fuels, the carbon dioxide level was rising, and so should temperatures. And yes, he did find that there was a correlation between the rise in average global temperatures and the rising concentration of CO2 in the air. Over the 50 years of data he studied, he found a rise of 0.3 degrees Celsius. He published a paper in the Royal Meteorological Society in April 1938, with a graph that showed a rise in temperature mostly after 1910, which followed almost perfectly the CO2 concentration. The data that Calendar exhibited, though, were very noisy, so scientists were rather skeptical of his results. Even so, the correlation he presented became known as the Calendar effect. Fifteen years later, in 1953, a new American PhD in geochemistry named Charles Keeling became interested in Calendar's paper. There was skepticism, as I mentioned, but also there was serious debate over how much carbon dioxide could dissolve in seawater and remove that gas from the air. So Keeling's postdoctoral group leader suggested. That you might guess at the concentration of carbonate in groundwater, if you assume that the groundwater is in equilibrium with the atmospheric CO2 and limestone, which is calcium carbonate. Over the next few years, Keeling invented better ways to determine the carbon dioxide concentration in the air, getting a precision of 0.1 percent, and also used the new technique of mass spectrometry. To analyze atmospheric gases, then current literature was imprecise about how much carbon dioxide was in the air—anywhere from 250 to 550 parts per million. So Keeling refined his carbon dioxide measurements. One fact he found was that the amount of carbon dioxide in the air was very similar from place to place, excluding urban fuel-burning environments. We now call this the atmospheric background concentration of carbon dioxide. Keeling expanded his research to start sampling air via infrared spectroscopy at the newly opened, isolated high-altitude Mauna Loa Observatory in Hawaii, where ground-level variations should be minimal. Within a couple of years, he discovered that carbon dioxide concentration rose and fell. In a predictable manner, according to the seasons, CO2 fell during the summer to fall, when plants absorb it and grow, and rose during the winter to spring, when leaves decay and give off CO2. As Keeling said, quote, "We were witnessing for the first time nature's withdrawing CO2 from the air for plant growth during the summer, and returning it each succeeding winter." Unquote. 
he was able to show this based also on the ratio of carbon 13 to carbon 12. At this time, carbon dioxide concentration was around 315 parts per million. But then in 1961, he began to notice another effect in CO2 air concentration. Beyond the seasonal cycle, there was a persistent rise in carbon dioxide from year to year. Kalandar was correct. This began to worry scientists. The National Science Foundation in 1963 warned of more heat trapping gases, as did President Johnson's Science Advisory Committee in 1965. Eventually, this continuous rise, which is still happening, came to be called the Keeling Curve. Today, carbon dioxide is about 420 parts per million, rising by about 2 parts per million every year. So what? So, over the next couple of decades, scientists began to measure similar trends in methane as well as the fluorocarbons we talked about. Clearly, people were affecting the air. Would this be a problem? Scientists agreed that it would be. Among the first public popularizations of the problem was an ITV documentary in December 1981 in England called Warming Warning. Even major petrochemical companies, which make their profits off of selling fossil fuels, did internal assessments of global warming. In 1982, the Exxon Corporation's internal science department estimated a doubling of CO2 concentration. With a rise in temperature of 2 degrees Celsius beyond 1982 global temperatures. Exxon's internal report said, quote, potentially catastrophic events that must be considered, unquote, including the U.S. Midwest becoming a desert. Shell, six years later, presented internal evidence for similar, if not even more severe consequences. Including the rise of the ocean by one meter because of melting of ice caps, and five to six meters with the collapse of the West Antarctic ice sheet. Shell included destruction of habitats, more flooding, and changing of how people lived and worked. And that year, James Hansen, an astrophysicist specializing in the atmospheres of planets Venus and Earth, of NASA, Testified to the U.S. Congress that global warming was happening already on a hot June day in 1988. Venus is an interesting case because its atmosphere is mostly carbon dioxide, which traps heat exceedingly well, giving a temperature on the surface hot enough to melt lead. The public never heard of Exxon and Shell's research in the 1980s. Rather, The faces of Exxon, Shell, and other petrochemical firms lied, gaslit, and distracted from the truth, just as we've heard multiple times before. The distraction and outright lying by these companies changed government policies, unlike the Freon manufacturers, with permanent consequences for the world and little to no consequences for the companies themselves. As the Guardian newspaper noted, Quote, they chose to accept those risks on our behalf, at our expense, and without our knowledge.、Unquote. 
and this happened even as newspapers reported on the rise in global average temperatures ever more sharply in the 1980s. We only know of the internal Exxon and Shell documents from leaks in 2015 and 2018. I publicly call on Exxon and Shell to acknowledge their deceit and take responsibility, both financial and moral. I await their answer. You heard it here. Let me be frank: global warming is real, and we people are responsible for it. It's not fake news, and it's not something out there beyond humanity. It's happening incredibly fast compared with other climate changes in the fossil record. We are the cause. Science doesn't decide how to deal with global warming. Science only observes and predicts. Whether we choose to act or not is not science, but public policy and morality. But if we choose to listen to the anti-science wackos and liars, that will have awful consequences for our descendants. Maybe you don't care about awful consequences. That's your right. But don't badmouth science in the process, and think about who might take money if the status quo remains. We leave the depressing inaction on carbon dioxide in the 1980s now, and we'll revisit it in a later episode when we can discuss more and better models for what happens in the atmosphere and the effects on us and our environment. In our next episode, as the recycling movement ramps up in the 1980s, we learn a bit about how plastics are recycled. Until then. Brave the elements. Thank you for listening to the History of Chemistry podcast. <laughs>